The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Barron's Live, our daily uh, web episode and podcast. I'm Carlton English, reporter at Barron's, and thank you so much for joining us today. We are thrilled to present today's program. Will 2022 finally be the year for female founders and funders? Already, 2021 was a strong year for female founders in terms of fundraising and performance. And today, we will explore if that momentum can continue. Joining us today is uh, Stacy Olivares, a former member of the board at CalPERS, the largest public pension in the U.S., and Dina Shakur, a partner at Lux Capital, where her investment focus is technologies that improve lives and livelihoods. Dina, I will let you take it away. Thank you so much. Thank you, Carlton. And Stacy. it's so great to see you again. We're delighted to be here and to kick off the new year with this critical conversation. It's 2022, January 12th, almost two years into this pandemic. I hope everyone is healthy and well. I've just recovered from Omicron riddling through my own family. Um, But we're here today to talk about the prospects for the year moving forward and the decade ahead of us, and specifically to double click on the economic implications of the future of funding and founding by women and underrepresented communities. It is now no surprise to any of us that women, and especially women of color, have borne the outsized burden of the pandemic. In fact, the New York Times even penned a series called The Primal Scream that was documenting the impact of the pandemic specifically on working mothers. I'm a mother of two myself. Stacy is a mom as well. We've all experienced this not only in our personal lives, but also in the impact on the way that we think about investing in early stage companies. McKinsey's Women in the Workplace report has shed light as well on what is now known commonly as the Great Resignation. Today, we're going to talk about the prospects as we look ahead for the future. What will it take for 2022 to be the year for women and underrepresented founders and intersectional founders? In order to do that, we need to take a look back. And let's start by grounding in the data, starting with 2020, which is no place to start. But let's specifically think about the idea of this black swan event, which many were predicting. When you look at the venture landscape, it was not the black swan event. In fact, there was an unprecedented volume and dollars that went in from venture capital funds to early stage companies. But how did that play out when it comes to founders who are women, who are underrepresented communities, who are intersectional? Unfortunately, 2020 was not and up here in that regard. Although the startup ecosystem increased in deal value by 16% in 2020, VC dollars invested in women-founded companies actually fell by 3%, as did deal count. 2020 brought some good news, or sorry, 2021 brought some good news, though not nearly enough. According to PitchBook, women-led companies raised $56 billion in uh, in 2021 across 30... 3,600 plus deals. 
6.5% of those, only 6.5% were founded by women-only founding teams, and 18.8% if you account for our co-founders. Unfortunately, that number is still too small. I want to turn it over to Stacy to talk about the earlier part of the venture ecosystem and sort of double click on the incentives and the implications of institutional investors as we think ahead to 2022 and beyond. Let's start by looking at the incentives and the alignment from institutions, from the LPs, as they look to their own theses and their uh, initiatives around diversity, specifically in underrepresented founders. Thank you, Dina. There's so much work to be done, but there's, this is an exciting time. We have the founders, we have the female funders, we're ready. So it's all about deploying the capital. Institutional investors right now are looking for what I call aligned alpha. So they want outperformance in their investments, but they also want investments to uphold their values, particularly with ESG. We're in a very uncertain environment right now. And I'm seeing four factors converge. We have COVID and with COVID comes an inflationary environment. We have a lot of people leaving the workforce. We have a lot of moms who are trying to balance it all. And then we also have a new awareness among institutional investors. It's a very late wake up call about the importance of racial justice, environmental protection, and gender parity. And that becomes very important because it's about the shift in demographics as well as the social impact. Institutional investors are now aware that they have to respond to the demographic shift. They have to respond to their base, whether it's a pension and the pensioners, or it's a large corporation that's investing part of their treasury. So institutional investors are finding this aligned alpha in a really interesting space. And that is with female and diverse founders and funders. There is an undervalue that's been happening with female and diverse founders and funders. And so oftentimes it's been hard for them to raise capital. So there's an opportunity for investors to come in there. But secondly, I, I think female and diverse founders and funders have an awareness of markets that others in that space don't, even though they're the, lar the largest demographic globally. So there's an opportunity there for large investors to come in and make some real returns. Absolutely. Many large investors, yeah, they're, but they're not designed for this. The institutional investors aren't. So if we're talking about the VC space, which you're in, how do you get a large institutional investor to deploy capital at scale so that we can lift up these founders and funders and get the returns that are needed in order to propel our economy. And so we have to start looking at ways to scale capital raising, ways to standardize the process so that it's easier for female and diverse founders and funders to access these large dollars. We're also going to be seeing more multi-stage funds that large investors can access. And that will allow more capital deployment across the spectrum. Absolutely, Stacey, I'm so glad you touched on, you know, everything from racial justice and social impact, but ultimately underscoring this notion of returns and capital. And so I want to 
you know, uh, double click a little bit on that idea and really drive home the the notion that investing in um, in founders from diverse backgrounds it certainly is great for the world, but ultimately it's great for business. And that's really what drives my personal uh, theses in, in terms of investing mm-hmm. in underdog founders. Right. I know it's what drives, uh, you know, institutions uh, as they think about investing in fund managers. So let's talk a little bit about those numbers as well. At the end of the day, it's, you know, it's our job as venture capitalists to generate returns for our LPs. And many of these LPs are, you know, uh, are some of the most philanthropic uh, institutions, endowments and, um, and uh, you know, charitable organizations out there. So there's that aspect of impact that we need to achieve, but we mm-hmm. only do that by generating returns. And what is shocking to me still in the context of, uh, of women founders is just how clear it is that they make amazing CEOs, that they generate higher revenues. I'm talking in the order of 12%, which has been documented, that they uh, are more capital efficient, that they generate higher ROI on the order of 35%. Uh, at PitchBook in their latest report, which they published at the end of November, actually even documented the pace of exits by women-led startups, which is also faster, both in terms of uh, value uh, higher as well as actual pace time to exit it. And uh, that's not even accounting for diverse boards. So, you know, I think if in a business that's so focused on signal, if we just looked at the numbers here, there's a business to be had just indexing and investing in, uh, in, in women-led companies. And I can't wait till we see more of that. Again, Absolutely. across the stages, across asset classes, and we're seeing women innovate in so many different areas. Yeah, let's talk about some of those uh, areas, uh, Stacey. And you mentioned earlier that, you know, that it's not only about, you know, uh, gender in this case, but it's also mm-hmm. about uh, investors and founders having access, having perspective yeah. to different markets. It is. It's been pretty closed. And, and we've seen that part of it is that is the challenge of raising capital. It's about limited access. And so what we need to do as LPs and institutional investors is ensure transparent an accessible process. And we don't have that yet. So I think there's a market opportunity there. I I also think that when it comes to women funders, there's the opportunity to partner together and create new structures that will work better with LPs. So we've seen this whole fund of fund strategy kind of die down, but there are different approaches that would work with institutional investors that would keep the costs low and then allow this access to capital so that we can innovate. It's, yep. This is where the alpha is going to be. This is the innovation. This is what's really going to light up 2022. Absolutely. You know, I think the transparency piece is I mean, there's so much opacity across the spectrum of, uh, of the of the venture landscape. And I've been really um, heartened to see even at the on the LP side, much more uh, light being shed. Um, you know, yeah. uh, Sapphire Ventures, um, for example, is, has co-founded an organization uh, called Open LP, which uh, uh, Beezer Clark then leads, which is really, uh, you know, opening up not only the sort of an uh, 
you know, demographics of who are LPs, what's behind them, what are their incentives, but um, really uh, offering insight into what that relationship looks like with GPs. Um, and there's a lot more of that that needs to be done as well from GPs looking into, you know, in, into founders. We know now that this is not just a hypothesis. It's not just, you know, uh, a good idea or, or, or a possibility that, um, you know, that uh, diverse fund managers and diverse GPs invest in more diverse companies. Again, that's been documented. Kaufman <laughs> Fellows, which is uh, an organization that, uh, that I'm a part of, has um, produced some really interesting research on uh, the incidence of um, of, of, of uh, diverse fund managers investing in diverse companies. And women are three times more likely to invest in, uh, in women-led startups. And women uh, leaders are also more likely to hire diverse founding teams. And what we see at the end of the day, and we, we should talk a bit about some of the exits that we saw in 2021, but when there, when there is this proliferation of wealth, not only from founders, but across executive teams, when you have these exits, you also end up having more angel investors. You have more capital that will continue to invest in future companies. And that's how ecosystems are built. Absolutely. I and mean, we're starting to see more diverse capital, cap tables. And that's going to build the wealth that then creates the angel investment that you're speaking of. And it looks like we have some questions. So the first one's from Brooke. Is it necessary to scale fundraising because the average initial investment needed by female founders is lower? Is that the disconnect with institutional investors? Dina, what do you think? Yeah, um, you know, I, I don't know that, that I agree with the sort of premise that the initial investment needed by female founders uh, is, is lower. I don't think that there's, you know, necessarily, um, you know, at the end of the day, if you're, if you're you know, writing up your financial projections that there's any difference between, um, a, you know, a P&L if the company is run by a woman versus run uh, mm -hmm. by a man. I, I, I don't think that's the case at all. But I think perhaps what Brooke is alluding to is that uh, the deal value in terms of uh, dollars deployed in companies started by women has um, has unfortunately been lower. And I think that is, um, you know, the result of all sorts of endemic issues that we can talk about, whether it's, you know, unconscious bias or, um, you know, or, or, or other uh, forms of bias. But at the end of the day, uh, there is definitely not a lower need uh, if a company happens to be founded by, um, you know, by a woman versus a man. So I, I don't think that's the disconnect uh, per se. Um, I, I think that there's a lot more to it uh, and uh, and a lot of work that needs to be done. Transparency is, you know, is part of the issue. Um, you know, we uh, have seen a slight increase in the number of women um, GPs and check writers, as, uh, you know, as Always calls them or, or PitchBook has uh, defined them in the last year. I think it's up 2%. It's still very much a minority. Uh, and so I think the more that we, uh, that we can continue to increase that, hopefully the more we'll see down the road. We know that women... Um, you know, are starting businesses. We know that their businesses, if they get venture funded, are more successful. We see that, you know, documented again in terms of revenue, in terms of uh, uh, ROI, in terms of, um, you know, time to exit. But what we are not seeing is enough of that, especially late stage capital going toward funding uh, these companies. And so there is a disconnect there. And I think we all need to double click on it. And having conversations like this with investors across asset classes and and highlighting the examples of, of some uh, of founders as well is, I think, how you start the conversation. And we have two questions related to that. So how do female founders access venture capital? How do they get started with that? You know, I, I, I think um, the, the question of access is also not, uh, you know, gender uh, specific. Um, you know, obviously, um, there are 
there are reasons why a, uh, a founder might may not get a meeting or may not necessarily be aware of networks. I think part of the challenge in this industry is that, uh, you know, VC has been largely, you know, a, a sort of closed network for a long time. And that is right. really changing. Um, the, you know, the fact that we are, you know, as an institutional investor, um, you know, and a, uh, and a GP here having this conversation and answering these questions, I think is testament to the, uh, you know, the potential to uh, shed light on these processes. There are a myriad new funds that have been uh, created uh, in the last year. You know, we're only 12 days into 2022, and there's also been nearly $10 billion in new, um, you know, uh, new funds created and raised between um, the various announcements over the last week. And we're literally only 12 days into 2022. So there's a lot of capital out there that needs to be deployed. Um, and there's there are a lot of challenges that technology is well suited to address, many of them in industries where women uh, have perhaps, um, you know, a, a, a uh, better access and better perspective to solving. And one of those, which I happen to spend the majority of my time in, uh, is healthcare, where women uh, not only represent 50% of the, of the population, but are responsible for spending 80% of the dollars in healthcare. And so women's health is a big area of focus for me and one where we're seeing incredible entrepreneurs uh, who happen to be women uh, creating generational businesses. So what are you seeing right now in the venture space in terms of some of the top venture funds, some of the top founders that are female and diverse? Yeah, you know, I think um, if you look back at 2021, um, you know, I have these very um, sort of uh, stark and happy memories of looking at the uh, founders who rang their the bell on the New York Stock Exchange, some of them holding their young children in tow. Um, some of them were, uh, you know, taking a, a multi-billion dollar companies public, whether through, um, you know, through SPACs or, or through listings uh, and otherwise. And, you know, it, it's unfortunate that that's still something that's a novelty to us. But the more of that that we see, the more uh, we'll see uh, earlier on in the pipeline. You know, I, I've told you this story, Stacey, but, uh, you know, a couple months ago, my six-year-old daughter asked me, uh, if boys can one day uh, grow up to become venture capitalists. And so, you know, there is um, there's so much that needs to, to be done, um, you know, starting with um, the, the, the earliest days. But when it comes to what we're seeing uh, in the market, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a partner at Lux Capital. We're a four billion dollar um, multi-stage venture capital fund. We love to invest in, uh, in in entrepreneurs who are turning science fiction into fact, or taking on some of the most challenging and intractable problems out there, and uh, you know, creating new markets through deep technology. And so, we've seen some incredible innovation happening uh, across a, a number of areas, um, from uh, you know, digital health um, and diagnostics, uh, with companies like uh, Everly Health, which is uh, founded and led by Julia Cheek. Uh, to Maven Clinic, uh, where we co-led the Series D, the first unicorn in women's and family health, led by Kate Ryder, to uh, a recent investment that we just announced this week in a company called Gameto, which is uh, taking on menopause and ovarian longevity. Um, so really some incredible, incredible companies uh, that are creating the future and, and happen to be led by women. I'm glad you mentioned diagnostics because I think that's an area that is very new in terms of getting funding, but insurance companies, pensions, a lot of other institutional investors are very interested in that space. And that's because the diagnostics that we have 
are based on a very limited sample set. And I think a lot of people don't know that. So when you have a blood test, for example, and you get your results, it's not based on who you are, right? It's not based on your DNA. It's often tied to a Caucasian male. Absolutely. Well, no, think about the population, right? It doesn't really work. So we need to change that. Yeah, there's, there, there, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because when it comes to healthcare, we often think about delivering care. We often think about mm -hmm. virtual care, and that's absolutely a critical piece of it. But, um, at, you know, the, the, the actual data that's underpinning clinical R&D is also, uh, unfortunately, uh, in need of some of, of, of uh, some diversity. And we see that through, um, you know, clinical trials, as you mentioned, um, you know, the especially in women's health, which still only represents a single digit percentage of, um, of of resources uh, in clinical innovation, but the data sets are- A single, I'm sorry, did you say a single digit percentage? Single digit percentage of, wow. of dollars um, in healthcare are being folk, are, are being put towards uh, clinical innovation in women's health. And so it's- it, And it has, aren't we the largest consumer? We, we well, it, we Women? control percent of the dollars. So yeah, absolutely. There's a massive market here. And so we need to be putting more into the R&D side. Um, and, and that's where care delivery will come from. So I think one example of that, Stacey, is in uh, infertility, um, which is uh, an area where I've spent a lot of time in. Uh, we uh, led the, the seed round on a company called A-Life Health, uh, which is um, using uh, advanced AI to make the IVF process more, um, uh, not only more efficient and more cost effective, but at the end of the day, more uh, more effective, um, and uh, you know that really starts at the at the research side. The, the data set right now that is used to determine uh, embryo viability um, and optimization is is not as diverse as the uh, you know the demographics of, of families who are trying to get pregnant, and and we know that infertility actually um, is uh, unfortunately uh, in another area where women of color in particular you know face uh, mm -hmm. unique challenges, and so we need to start on the data set uh, side, and so we're invested in companies like H1 um, and like Human First and uh, and a number of others, including A Life and Aiden, that are really focused on actually diversifying the data set in order to get to better care delivery. So let's go to a little bit about scale. So a company has their MVP, they're ready to go into seed and then maybe into venture. What do you recommend is their ideal path and for them to get started? Because we're getting a lot of questions about this. We've just had three and thank you all for the questions. We're here to answer them. Absolutely. So, um, you know, I think Let's take a step back here. Not every business needs to be a venture-backed business. Um, you know, as a VC perhaps, and that's not uh, that's not something you would expect to hear, but it's true. And so there are, you know, there are many, many successful businesses out there that you know don't require venture funding. When it comes to venture-backed companies, it's important again to go back to incentive alignment and to uh, understand that that a venture investment uh, is expecting a venture-like return. You know, I think we are in this uh, this renaissance now of technology. You know, we had the 10, 10 12 years ago, the fourth industrial revolution. And, and, and now there is, uh, you know, this digital transformation that is not only uh, happening in areas like healthcare and uh, industrial and, and, and automotive, but really in almost every industry. Technology is no longer a separate sector. It's a way of doing everything right. better. And so there's so much opportunity um, and as we just talked about, there is a hell of a lot of capital out there to put to work. So how do you get started? You start building. Start building, you raise the funds and the funds that you need to raise will depend on the type of business you're in, how much capital you need and what it takes to scale. 
Exactly. There's also been, you know, uh, you know, I, I think a, a marked uh, democratization of of, um, of investing too that we've seen. There, are, there are, you know, platforms out there um, that are doing crowdfunding, um, you know, uh, that are um, even enabling LPs to invest with small checks as small as five thousand, which used to be too small to even do a direct mm -hmm. investment. Uh, platforms like AngelList that are enabling that. There are so many, uh, you know, untraditional types of investors who want to be putting capital to work and investing in early stage companies is actually, you know, one of the, uh, you know, I, I think one of the more popular ways to invest these days, there's this whole phenomenon of, uh, of Gen Z VCs, uh, you know, who are uh, thinking about putting money into early stage companies when I wasn't even, uh, you know, thinking about being able to pay my credit card bill at that age. So there's really, a, you know, I think a, a lot more uh, access to different types of capital than there have been in prior years. Absolutely. I mean, it's exciting to see what's happening with fractional investments um, in private companies. And so there's Republic, there's Alto IRA, there are many different companies, Sweater, for example. So just getting that early access, there's risk. So it's not an investment necessarily recommendation that we're making, but it is a way to engage and to invest in a way that aligns with your values and for very significant returns. Absolutely. And, and then we're seeing the demand change the investor demand change how companies are structured so now we, we've seen in california we had legislation that passed that mandates that there be women and people of color on corporate boards and we're seeing that change in corporate governance not only improve the performance of these companies but also how these companies invest so as you mentioned before it is an ecosystem right it's all circular so we grow that entire cycle so that there is more capital available. And we have another question too, and it's about ESG. So when we think about investments in early stage, particularly with female founders, how do you see that match up with the demand for ESG? Yeah, absolutely. And Stacey, I'd love your perspective on this as well, as I know it's something where you, you've spent a lot of time. It's funny because, you know, I, I started off my career uh, more squarely in the impact space. I'm sort of a, a, a non-traditional VC in many ways. Um, uh, and I worked in development and diplomacy and, and Obama administration. So, you know, back then, I don't think I'd even heard the term ESG. There was CSR, there was impact mm -hmm. investing, there was, you know, so there's all sorts of acronyms soup right now. But, you know, ESG um, on the, uh, you know, on the um, sort of institutional side is definitely something that's been top of mind. And actually, I'd love to turn that question to you. And I'm happy to chat more about how I think about impact, you know, from a um, capital deployment perspective. But on the institutional side, do you think that that's actually having an impact in terms, no pun intended, in terms of the types of companies or types of fund managers that uh, institutions are seeking out? Sure. I mean, there's the institutional impact investor, and that might be a foundation that really intends to deploy capital for a specified impact. So it's part of their mission. There are institutional investors who want, again, like this alpha alignment so that there's an environmental, social, or some type of governance benefit as a result of this investment. And so when institutional investors are looking at female and diverse founders, they're looking at the overall economic impacts of those investments. So if I invest with, for example, a female fund manager here in Los Angeles that has as part of her investment thesis, investing with women and people of color in technology, say software, for example, I can then look at 
the metropolitan statistical areas of where those founders are, the jobs created. I can look at the multiplier effects of those small businesses. And so what we see is distributed wealth creation. We see the rising tide lifting many different people. And we need more of that. And as we improve the types of capital that are going out so they are more accessible and we deploy to women and people of color, we'll start to see improvements in equity overall. We have far to go. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. You know, um, I, I do want to underscore, uh, and I know you uh, agree with this, that uh, I think it's important to separate the idea of ESG and DEI and like, let's forget the acronyms. Like, let's let's just say mm-hmm. it's something here. Investing in women is not about charity. A charity. It's not about philanthropy. It's not about feeling good about oneself. It is good business. And we talked a bit about that data earlier on, but ultimately it's it's good business, not only in terms of the, you know, the, the metrics that we see, but also in terms of the areas, as you mentioned, that we are seeing innovation in, whether it is healthcare or climate, uh, you know, in, in, even in industrial, there are, um, you know, there are so many areas where we, we, uh, we are seeking innovation and we're, we happen to be seeing incredible entrepreneurs that are women or in intersectional uh, founders that are starting companies there. And that's ultimately what we're in the business of doing. And so the ESG uh, element, I think, is perhaps more tied to the sectors they're investing in. Um, oh. But I do I do think it, we should sort of divorce the idea of, of um, diversity being, you know, part of ESG, because I think that will always relegate it to some sort of, mm-hmm. you know, second tier or philanthropic, um, uh, uh, you know, priority, which it shouldn't be. It's not. It's essential. Well, you mentioned innovation as being key to performance and how technology is no longer a separate sector. It's involved with everything. Can you tell me what your top two ideas for investments and economic outlook are for 2022? <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, gosh. Well, I don't know about top two. I could I could t- tell you my top 200. But, you know, there are a lot of areas <laughs> that we're um, that we're excited about. Um, you know, it should come as no surprise to anyone um, that uh, that, you know, healthcare is an area where I've spent a lot of time. We started off the conversation talking about the pandemic that we're in, um, you know, despite the uh, proliferation of dollars that have gone into to digital health and, and healthcare innovation, there is still so much need. I mean, the the whether we're talking about access to, you know, you know, simple uh, rapid tests at home or, uh, you know, trying to get our medical records out of the system. So I'm still um, very interested. And I think there's a massive market there. Um, and I would say if I had to choose two, I would, I would start again on the R&D side. How can we um, further accelerate innovation uh, in clinical research to actually get to these uh, important outcomes? solving cancer, early detection of, um, you know, of, 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 uh, of chronic disease. And that requires more diversity, um, not only from founders, but really in the research. And then the second piece of that, I would say, is around, um, you know, women's and family health. And so we're very excited mm-hmm. about what some of our companies are doing there and continually looking for solutions around, um, you know, mental health and, um, you know, and parenting tech. Um, especially given the crisis working parents have been in over the last several years. And that's a great point because I'm interested in NFTs. And with that comes a lot of screen time. In fact, Carlton and I were just talking about NFTs. So let's bring Carlton back to wrap us up. Thank you so much for the conversation today, uh, Dina and Stacy. A uh, ton more we could have covered, but unfortunately that's all we have time for today. 
Um, and also thank you viewers. Uh, we would love to have your feedback on today's episode. Uh, please take two minutes to complete a short survey. Uh, you can either find the survey link in the chat or it will also be included in the post webinar email. And finally, please join us again tomorrow. Financial News' Trista Kelly will speak to Umar Farouk, head of JP Morgan's Onyx unit, which focuses on blockchain and digital assets. They will discuss the evolution of crypto at JP Morgan and how smart money investors approach crypto in their portfolios and how regular investors can follow suit. Again, thank you so much for tuning in. Be well and have a nice day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.